Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I am excited to be presenting with my dear friend, Supreet Manchanda, here live from a hotel in Barcelona, where we just finished going through speaking at a great event. It's an alumni event for an executive MBA program called Trium. And Supreet is the managing director of Raven Capital, and he's just brilliant and wonderful friend. So I'm looking forward to sharing him with you today. Welcome, Supreet. Thank you. I appreciate it. So for our guests out there, for digital selfers, can you tell them a little bit about your story? Who are you and what do you do? Wow. That's a, long, that's a tall uh, order. In a nutshell. Come in a, on. In a nutshell. So <laughs> Indian-born, African-raised, British and American-educated, Texas and California, been in Silicon Valley for 25 years. And really, I'm in the business of helping companies come alive. And, and we go to great lengths at Raven Capital to bring ideas to life. That's what we do. And that's so important today because a lot of companies don't really get to that phase. How do you see digital has changed the whole environment for supporting that growth and bringing companies to life? So it's an interesting piece. You know, we went from analog paper mm-hmm. and we did, by the way, processes were not optimized on paper. And people are busy trying to digitize them. And, you know, you end up with that old Lucy episode where the the line for chocolates is moving too fast and she's busy tossing them everywhere and eating them and everything. And I think we're going through that, the hype part of trans digital transformation. But this is an ongoing really about how do you do change? Mm-hmm. How do you actually bring people to a point where they can, you know, get the information they need at their fingertips to actually create action. Mm-hmm. And when people ask me, what do you think of digital transformation? I'm like, we've been doing this all our lives. We used to call it change management. Now it's digital transformation. But it really is, okay, so we're making things that were on paper, information, data into electronic. And now we're able to see the flow of it. Before we saw it in static pictures. Mm-hmm. Now it's become a movie. And at some point, it'll become part of our DNA. And then it used to be we would do this incrementally once in five years with a strategic plan. Then it became we came up with these concepts called agile. And all of a sudden, we're now doing it dynamically. And nothing's really changed other than maybe some uh, taxonomy and some verbiage that we're using. The processes are still the same. You're still working on getting the right information in the hands of people to make the right decisions at a point in time. That's what really digital transformation enables. Absolutely. But have you observed sort of where there's the challenges in that, in that sometimes humans and digital don't transform simultaneously in that process? And where have you seen that in a success factor? And where have you seen that as being an issue? Okay. So let's talk about where it's not been done well. Mm -hmm. If an executive gives uh, lip service, and says, okay, I want us to transform the company digitally, and they digitize the records, but they don't go look at the processes, and what you've managed to do is is just speed things up. Mm-hmm. And actually what happens is you get more errors, mm-hmm. you get more failure. And then, of course, there's that whole conversation of how do you do business continuity when people forget how to do things, analog, 
and they're trying to do things in a digital workspace, but their mindset is still of an, an analog one. Mm-hmm. Now, the flip side of that is when you have success, you work on people to change their mindset so that they become dynamic in their thinking and actions. Because really, if you think of it, it's a ladder. We had facts. We used to put them on spreadsheets. We organized that, and it became some form of structured data, which led to information, which, of course, has a Mm half-life. And now as we do transformation, we're trying to get to insight. So data to structured knowledge to new actionable insight. Mm -hmm. If you think of it, it's actually, there are many more steps, but it would be three big steps. If you don't change your mindset, you will still be making the wrong decision, even though the information you have is right. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest dilemma is, I had the right information, but I still made the wrong decision because I was only trained one way. Mm -hmm. A key distinction as I work with companies, startups and others, turnarounds, is first you work on fixing the process so garbage in is not garbage out. Second, you work on helping people change their mindset and get mastery of it. And third, you work on technology, Mm -hmm. which seems counterintuitive because they're like, aren't you from Silicon Valley and aren't you a techie guy? I'm like, yes, technology is a lever, but we are really in the business of changing humans and human behavior. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you explained it really nicely in that way. And I think a lot of... A lot of times you hear sort of, oh, well, you know, the bottleneck is in the process, but that doesn't really identify what, you know, what's happening in that process and how to fix it. So that's really great. Have you, do you have any particular stories or examples that you've, that have really stand out to you of where this has been done well? And also maybe some that have, you know, you've had to, had a quick learning process, but maybe you were able to battle through it and and get people to change their mindset or maybe quit. You know, that sometimes you know that saying, you know, good experience comes from bad judgment. Mm-hmm. Bad judgment comes from having bad experiences. Absolutely. And failure becomes a wonderful teacher. Of course, we do that. You know, one of the things, and maybe it's my process bias, is we very seldomly look at the whole thing from end to end. And as I've gone into corporations and as I've gone into startups, I actually ask them to model what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And we actually do it in that little, what is step one and what is step two and what is step three and, you know, and the neck bones connecting to the hip bone, how? Mm -hmm. And you start asking those questions. And very often we're siloed. We, We have vertical hierarchies inside companies, you know, functional areas. Mm -hmm. And yet the processes are horizontal. Mm -hmm. So, Use a typical process, hiring to letting go. So how do you recruit people? How do you get them onboarded? How do they make sure the computer arrives just in time as they arrive on their desk? How do you get people to connect with them? How do they start working on their first projects? How do you do a good updates? How do you get to closing a project? And then how do you help them understand what they learned through that whole process? You notice it's a bunch of steps. Mm Mm-hmm. Many people are involved, the payroll people, the onboarding people, the project line managers, the quality control people in this process, but they never sit together and talk through, how do we make this process more efficient? Mm -hmm. Let alone, the very first question is, is this process really effective? Mm -hmm. I really fundamentally look and work people between those two parameters or two axes. 
you can make a process very effective, but not very efficient. You can make some process very efficient, but they won't be effective. And you have to ride the balance between the two, knowing how to make something effective first and efficient second. Mm-hmm. Many times people are on the efficiency bandwagon without realizing, are we, you know, have we asked the question why we're doing it in the first place? Which is, is this really what we need to do? And I try to get them to say, okay, I'm going to give you what they call a God's eye view. So you can see, or like an AWACS, you know, mm-hmm. so you can see the view and the landscape, the way you're working so that you can see what the, what is the impact or model or simulate the impact of your actions. Mm-hmm. And this is where systems then come in that you can show people and say, look, if you did action A, it would have this consequence. If you Mm -hmm. did action B, it would have that consequence. Which consequence are we looking for and work the process backwards rather than just randomly just keep going? Yeah, much more outcomes-based. Very much outcomes-based. I mean, if we are driven by outcomes, Mm -hmm. you know, financial markets enforce quarterly returns, they enforce quarterly metrics, monthly metrics, and all. So it's very much an outcome based. But I tend to think of it more than outcome, more driven by objectives and key results, Mm -hmm. a very much a results oriented that has that is bound by metrics as parameters. Mm -hmm. So you're getting to the outcome, but you're continually adjusting based on the metric that you're getting, that you're measuring both the efficiency and the effectiveness from. Mm-hmm. Places where I've seen this work, I really like, you know, I know people get bandied, people like Cisco. Cisco has been a very efficient company. I really watch them go through this and in, in places where I've helped them through some transformations is, are we serving the customer mm-hmm. has become a metric. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important metric. And the other metric was, okay, what's revenue by employee? Mm-hmm. So the revenue by employee really addresses the how efficient can we become with every employee. And are we serving the customer is the most, you know, and it's in English. It's a, how well are we serving the customer? What metric says we serve the customer? The advantage of that is everybody gets aligned into that direction. Mm-hmm. I look at that and flip that on the investment space then is are we working on the right things? Because you in in systems and processes, you end up with buckets of processes. There are processes that you invest in to get a return, and there are processes that you manage to minimize loss. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a very simple example. If it's related to your intellectual property, it's something you invest in to get the return. If it's related to your governance, it's something you manage to get the right outcome. One is an, inv- an investment, the other is a cost. Mm-hmm. Both the utilizations of financial resources, but one has a different outcome from the other. One is invest, and you get future return from it. The other is cost management, and you create the efficiency behind it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I mean, each of those is managed by how the people are connecting and actually getting the results that right. are needed. So as you were saying in the earlier part, if the technology that you're adopting after the process or before the processes, if that's broken, you know, if people don't understand the processes before they adopt to the new technologies, they're only exacerbating the problems and creating bigger and issues. And I, I would actually bring about that the inefficient design of systems, mm-hmm. because when people don't understand how they're using the system to get an outcome in a process, mm-hmm. they won't adopt it. Yeah. I'm in the business of helping people use their technology to gain mastery. Mm-hmm. And mastery is about creating a comfort level more than just learning a skill. Mm-hmm. 
And the advantage is if you're able to get them to a point where they understand the why really well. So why am I working on this? What's my role in this? How do I accomplish it? By when do I need to accomplish it? Mm-hmm. You know, we're back to the six honest men. Mm-hmm. And we answer it in that format. What happens is the result becomes very easily attainable. Mm-hmm. The second piece of this is many times the reason things don't get accomplished inside organizations is because there's no alignment. Mm-hmm. When you teach people this process methodology that I use, what happens is they very quickly get all aligned. They develop a common lingo. So then they know, okay, I'm working on such and such and I've got a certain metric. They use common terminology. So everybody understands it well understood. And then they're able to accomplish and declare victory because everybody's got the same goal in mind. And you notice I'm not using any technical terms in this. Mm, it's alignment. It, alignment, right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in terms of scale, does that make a difference when you're, I mean, obviously the technology allows you to scale it to much larger sizes, but do you think that there's really a difference in terms of the the adaptability to alignment when you have a large organization versus a small organization? It's uh, smaller organizations can be, are more nimble because there are less people in creating change. But, but I can tell you one thing, whether it's large or small, the introduction of failure is pretty easy. You know, small organizations can distractive and collectively jump off the cliff where in large organizations, there may be someone to say, stop. Are you sure you're doing this? And larger organizations are often encumbered by inertia. Mm-hmm. A piece of the organization wants to be innovative and the other piece of the organization doesn't want to move. And so this alignment piece allows leadership to really create people to get forward in the same and develop a pace. Mm-hmm. So they are the early adopters who will lead the process. Often I use them as champions. Mm-hmm. And they're the late you know, adopters who will lag behind, but they're also the quality control. And, and I ask them very much to ask the right questions to make sure we're constantly checking, are we on the path in the right manner? Mm-hmm. Now, the processes are broken into most companies have about 30 to 40 percent processes that are highly inefficient. If you're a billion dollar concern, let's just take that. About 30% of the processes are obsolete. Just get seeing them and fixing them or getting rid of them creates such a huge vacuum of space, a space there that allows people to fill it with good. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a very simple example. Business guy is watching his wife make a pot roast. And you notice she cuts off the ends of the pot roast. And you ask her, why do you do that? And he's like, mom does that. So Easter comes and they go to mom's house and she's watching the same process again, making a pot And he asks her, and the mom cuts the ends off the pot roast and she asks, why do you do that? And the answer is mom did that. Finally, that grandma's at Thanksgiving and he sees the same operation again. And he finally asks grandma, why do you do that? He's like, oh, I was in the depression area. We just didn't have a pan big enough. We yeah, institutionalize yeah, yeah. and because mom made it, we iconified it and almost deified it because how dare you go against mom. But the root cause was so different and it was a point in time. Yeah. And it's no longer applicable, but it, the process continues. And this is when I get people to start questioning. Mm-hmm. Are you sure you're doing this for the right reason? Or do you even know what caused this to begin? 
Mm-hmm. They very quickly start abandoning these obsolete processes because nobody – humans, by nature, the moment you find something that's not going to work, we will gravitate towards things that do work. Mm-hmm. So an organization, that attrition that happens is not forced. It becomes internal. Mm-hmm. And once you get that cultural change happen, that's the mindset shift that you want that will allow them to first optimize and fix the processes – then use the technology to speed it up, scale it up. And that, guess what? In that process, they already become champions of change. Nice. Really nice. I want to switch tact here a little bit because I know you've got this great group, Raven, where you've been raising funds for some new projects. And I'm curious what you've experienced in sort of the change of the dynamics of the way the VC space has moved given sort of the way that, one, what we're looking for in new technologies, but two, also how we use technologies in the whole process of fundraising and applying capital? So, yeah, that's two different questions. I know. So take that in two different parts. So let's, let's talk about the fundraising space. Lots of people raising money, lots of money in the market. And, you know, what we did was we took R&D from inside companies and we crowdsourced it, if mm-hmm. you think of it like way. And startups became that crowdsourcing. So the innovators started getting the money. So there's a lot of impetus for a whole bunch of people to change and create new products. Silicon Valley, of course, has got a lot of energy and a lot of people coming into it. And how do you capitalize on that? Mm-hmm. We're a global fund. We're born global in the sense that we source everything from around the globe, because ideas are not just restricted to Silicon Valley or little sectors of innovation. We're discovering innovation everywhere. The hard part is there's not enough money out there. There's lots of money, but there's not enough of the right money that goes and funds it. So it becomes regional. People in Silicon Valley only funding people in Silicon Valley, which is why everybody's coming there. Very quickly, cost structures change. Mm-hmm. It's become very expensive to do that. So we're looking around the globe to find appropriate technologies that improve the human condition mm-hmm. and and either they're solving a, a human problem for med tech or they're an efficiency problem in fintech or a new way to teach in ed tech and and so on and so forth mm-hmm. we're very infrastructure centric we like to we i ask a fundamental question how is this going to improve the customer experience mm-hmm. and it's not just eyeballs but actually creating a shift in customer usability, in customers' ability to actually get utility out of what they're making, not just an app, but usually more. So we have a bias for that. Mm-hmm. We're also thinking of us not as, what's a good, fire and forget type mm-hmm. of money or, you know, the quote-unquote dumb money. We really want to help our startups in our ventures to sort of scale and grow. We're by country, by national. We're based in Canada, which helps us to take some advantages. The government helps co-invest, and it's an amazing ecosystem to go play in. They also have very high talent, high intellectual property protections, and most importantly, the government is helping fund a lot of the early startup work. Then we scale and bring them to Silicon Valley, so as they grow up, so then they can get an efficiency you know, kick. And this way, we're able to help them manage the very precious dollars they get in the beginning and use them well, and then be able to scale and grow. And that creates an arbitrage almost to think of. And we think we can grow them better. So we we think of ourselves as capital as a service. Mm -hmm. We want to be smart money, but more importantly, we want them to go through series A, series B, and then be able to create an exit. 
we don't make money until we create an exit. And so that's really important to us. And we want better survivability. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for our startups, for our founders, we want to really look at this and create value in, within our ecosystems. Nice. And I've met some of your team, and they're quite uh, globally diverse, which is really great people. And a lot of them you met through this alumni organization that we were just presenting at. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about the people that I met here is it's a, you know, everybody's from all over the globe. You guys did this program together, but you meet in sort of a distributed model, very similar to what I did for my PhD. How do you find that adds quality to diversity of thought, diversity of ideas and experience? And where does that add value to both your portfolio, but also the richness of the experience of working with a team? So we we call our fund a cognitively diverse fund, Mm -hmm. but this is a reflection of who we are. So in a nutshell, Trium is the coming together of three universities, NYU Stern, London School of Economics, and HEC from Paris, and they created a six-module base where you spend two weeks in residence and the rest of the work you do offline. But what's very interesting is because we're forced to work together across time zones, across cultures, is it's remarkable. Most of our people speak between three to five languages. Most of our people are culturally aware between two to three cultures. You know, we call ourselves Nowarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Pico Iyer coined this wonderful term where we have none of us have any two feet in any one culture, but many feet in many cultures. Where it works in the startup world is, one, it allows us to bring a, a much broader set of experiences from across the globe because we may have a bias because, say, we're North American-based if it's just someone who's in America versus someone who's had that experience of having lived in Japan and Korea and Africa and Dubai and India or wherever they're coming from, Australia. What that does is allow us to bring the mix of experiences And many times the lessons we learn allow us to guide our founders in such a way we're like, look, this lesson came from there. Be careful for it. Mm -hmm. Collectively, also the diversity of our group, uh, we're 50% women, and we're very culturally malleable in the sense that our malleability comes from people having lived in many cultures. That experience set, again, from when we're looking at good startups, is looking for their makeup to be a diverse makeup. Why? Because diverse makeups create higher value. Mm. They create a richness of experience. They create a richness in their products and services they make. And most importantly, you care, you get a sense of caring. And I think that's the difference between surviving and failing Mm -hmm. many times. Absolutely. I want to ask you a personal question because I know you've lived in a lot of wonderful places and traveled a lot of wonderful places. What's your favorite place to do business? Well, I have a bias. I think the favorite place to do business is still the United States. Really? Well, we are, for all our flaws, highly transparent. Mm. And in the work we do, transparency really matters. The more opaque a system, and by nature, I'm betting on the future. Mm -hmm. I'm a venture capitalist. I'm bringing the experience set from the history and lessons learned from our team and myself to actually go and look at the criteria and the quality of startups. Mm -hmm. But we're betting on the future. 
it has to be by nature, if it's a more transparent system, that means we are open to opening the kimono and looking inside and showing and not being afraid to share. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and this came from my father, in great vulnerability comes great strength. Mm-hmm. When you're able to share and be open about things, guess what? You won't be able to lie to yourself either. And the first lie is always the one you tell yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you're not able to do that, then what you present is always going to be the truth. It might be harsh. It might be, I won't invest in you. But it's always coupled with, I'm not going to invest in you. However, if you do A, B, C, then we'll look at this again. It's not a no. It's a, it's a nuanced no. Mm. We want our founders to be successful. We want companies we see when they've got a great idea and maybe not so great an execution plan. We want to help them with that. Or they need to have a team shift. We want to help them with that because we want to see that success. We're banking on it, actually. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, actually, the transparency issue is so incredibly important. And from a personal perspective, from a business perspective, from even a technology perspective, I think that you know the compliance and ethics of that are, are really key for moving forward. How do you feel you use technology in terms of, you know, do you have, do you feel like you have good boundaries around your own technology use? And is that something you look at at all in terms of the companies that you're looking at and how they, what's the culture of technology use inside the organizations that you're investing in? I do that personally. I think it's very important for us to switch off. Mm -hmm. I have a bias. I write things down. I'm old school, paper Mm -hmm. and pencil. But I found that many times I'm drawing and sketching. I have notebooks filled with stuff. And, and I, the, the advantage of that is it's not in some digital archive. It's actually I pull out a book, I remember it, I look at a page, and I can see, one, my own personal growth, but more importantly, a library of ideas, however harebrained they may be, but a genesis of them and then a path. Mm-hmm. And I encourage many times our founders, especially the younger ones, is make an archive, make a, a journal, and, and make it to where it's what you experience, what you learned, and then what tech did you use, if any. Mm-hmm. And what happens is it becomes nuanced because you're looking at it from a content perspective. Mm-hmm. You're looking at it from a context perspective. And then you're applying the technology. So you notice the technology always, the bias is on the... And people think I'd be an early adopter, and I am, but I'm not the earliest adopter. I'm in the middle because I'm always looking at, okay, how did we shift our own behavior based on this? Too often, technology is taking medicine without looking at the side effects if you just take it without paying attention. Mm. Uh, It behooves us to read the side effects before we just adopt something. Might be that you don't need the medicine to begin with, or at least you're aware. If you know a side effect is going to make you drowsy, don't drive the car. You know, that kind of, you know, and technology is the same way. If you know for children, for example, something's going to be addictive, maybe you want to restrict it. And that's just a bias. But I think that even when we're able to cognitively disengage, then what happens is we let our brain process that at a different pace. Because otherwise all we're doing is bombarding ourselves with brand new pieces of information without having assimilated or even understood what we've got. Uh, and it caused some kind of technical schizophrenia, as I call it. You segued perfectly into where I wanted to make sure that we covered one of the most 
one of my favorite things about our relationship and the way that you have built relationships with your greater community, business community and network. And it's around gathering together in an offline environment of sharing time to make a meal. And I think, you know, whether it's actually physically sitting down to make a meal together, but having those offline experiences with your team to, you know, with people that you meet to really expand the opportunity of understanding people on a deeper level and that transparency piece. Is that something that comes to you culturally from your upbringing or is that something that you've learned along the way? I think it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I'm a product of two teachers mm-hmm. and I think uh, both of them are very wise, but also very conscious about knowledge and learning. What did you learn from this experience is a very important question we got asked growing up. Mm-hmm. Secondly, personal love. It's my relaxation. I love to cook. When you make a big pot of something, you just can't eat it yourself. Mm-hmm. And then so you gather good people. And I like the cross-section of food and great dialogue. Great food, good wine is is very important for us. We don't use technology. You know, I have a round dining table and I only invite as many people as can fit on my round dining table. I hate corners because then you don't have any little clicks forming. Mm -hmm. But in that, we start this dialogue. And many times we ask, I ask a very simple question many times, which is, tell me, we're so caught up in what we do, we forget about a very important piece of who we are. I like to ask, what do you love? Mm. And I've had people come back to me after I've asked that question and they gave a, a funny answer to it. And they went back and said, I really didn't know what I loved. And now I've come back. And it's important, I think, I keep talking about this, especially in this day and age where we're talking about artificial intelligence and everything else. The more we talk about that, the more important it is for us to stress our humanity. Mm-hmm. Humanity comes from connecting. Yeah. And what we love is a foundation of where that begins. Absolutely. And I think there's something that's kind of, well, it's not kind of magical. It is very magical of connecting with people on that basis of sharing what you love. And I think when you're coming from an environment where it is very diverse, you've got lots of different cultures mixed and, you know, sort of coming back to that whole nowhereans and connecting people on their commonalities and their passions there's something really magical about having that opportunity to have a shared experience. Yes. And it really, you know, it resonates much more than, you know, you can have a Zoom conversation, but everybody is sort of half engaged and... and uh, Very hard to break bread while Zooming. Yeah. And you can still have that Zoom conversation afterwards to follow up on the conversation that you maybe sort of you know, connected on something and say, hey, you know, maybe we should try to see if we can create something out of this afterwards. But there's something really powerful about that uh, initial interaction that's a shared experience. So thank you for sort of instigating that in many instances. And we've met lots of very interesting people through you in that in that environment and eaten a lot of great food. Ah, yes. That's the most important part. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, absolutely. Come back and we'll eat some more food. Absolutely. Well, look forward to it. And 
Thank you, Digital Suffers, for joining us today. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please make sure you download it and you register so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes and share it with your friends. And uh, we look forward to catching you next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for The Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.